Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Russell Lichtenthal at Flanour Wines in Carleton. It's uh, March 2nd, 2020. Thanks so much for joining us today, Russell. Thank you. Uh, first question for you, easiest question, hardest question. Mm-hmm. Why wine? Why wine? Why not wine? Uh, why wine? <clears throat> always interested in food from a young age. Always you know, helping my mom cook in the kitchens. Um, her kitchen, not the kitchens. <laughs> Do not come from a family of restaurateurs. Do not come from a family of wine drinkers, but a family of big eaters. Uh, food was always, you know, a big part of everything. Holidays, uh, you know, even a nightly dinner. Growing up was always a bigger deal than it was in most houses. I think mm-hmm. with everything from setting the table, and if I didn't set the table right, I had to reset it, put the fork on the left side, and the whole bit. Um, so I went to culinary school and took a couple of wine courses that you have to, it's mandatory. Um, and even before going to culinary school, I knew that you know, if you wanted to be you know, an executive chef, a big famous chef, it would behoove you to know a little bit about wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, watching the Food Network, you see all the chefs back in the 90s when I was still cooking on the Food Network. Um, you know, at the end of them cooking whatever it was, they would have you know, this bottle of wine goes really well with whatever the dish was. Um, and after taking more wine courses, when I graduated school and I was working as a chef, a cook, um, a position came available in the front of the house. And uh, the restaurant that I was working at said, if you want to try this out, you're 25. <coughs> if you don't like it after a year, you go right back into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Why not? So that is what I did. And still miss cooking, still love it, but uh, wine just kept taking me to new opportunities, things like that, and uh, I just stuck with it. So tell me about that, that kind of first experience then, the friend in the front of the house, you, had, you, had, you came into it from a food and culinary perspective, mm-hmm. now you're into hospitality and wine, mm-hmm. so tell me about that kind of transition and what it was that appealed to you about that. It's all interconnected, uh, everything in the restaurant, whether you're in the back of the house or the front of the house. Uh, I think it certainly helps having a cooking background when you're speaking to a guest about wine. Um, you're able to relate to the food a lot more. You're able to communicate the chef's you know, vision or dish or concept, whatever it is, to the guest. Um, so it's kind of like being fluent in two languages. You're able to talk about both. It's interchangeable. And I think that all sommeliers and winemakers and everyone should spend some time taking a cooking course or spending you know, two weeks staging in some kitchen. I think that it would help give people a lot of perspective. Um, so it was pretty easy going to the front of the house, being able to talk about the food. Mm-hmm. I had some wine knowledge, so that helped, but still, you know, that much. <laughs> now I have maybe that much. Um, what was really helpful and really cool is that it was at a restaurant that I was working at already. Uh, so I knew the entire back of the house team. I had the chefs on my side. I knew the servers because I had been working with them for the previous two years. I knew the general clientele, so I knew everything about that restaurant in general. So uh, the hardest part was. Uh, I guess just not being shy right off the bat, knowing that you have you know, 30 seconds to forge this great relationship with that table, mm-hmm. uh, and then grow from there and try to build it as much as you can. 
that was, I was a little bit more shy when I was younger, so, but within a couple of months, being on the front of the house, being on the floor, that was, it was great. Tell me about the, the wine knowledge necessary. At the beginning, you, you mentioned not having a ton of wine knowledge. Mm -hmm. Tell me about at what point you become comfortable making those kinds of quick decisions and, 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 and encouraging people for, to get the right wine with the right food. At what point does that become something you can do a second nature? Um, that took really just two or three months into that position to be comfortable to make those recommendations. Um, and it wasn't that my wine knowledge was so much better after you know those two months working on the floor. It was that I was more comfortable with the wines that we had on that list. So tell me about how you got to Oregon. I know you had how I got to Oregon. extensive travel before that. So tell us about <laughs> sort of from that stage to, to here. I did. Always uh, interested in Oregon particularly uh, in terms of the West Coast wine producers. And it was actually a very roundabout sort of thing. I came out to Oregon initially in 2015. Uh, before that, I was working in Manhattan. Uh, left in September of 2014 to go work harvest at a winery in Germany. Got rid of my apartment in Brooklyn, packed up everything, sold a bunch of stuff. And the winery in Germany, I was friends with the winemaker, said, oh, you could come out, you could spend six months, you could spend eight months, whatever you want. And I was like, oh great, I'm gonna try to become a winemaker or something. So I get out there and a couple of days into it, I tell him all the information, this is what I need to get the visa. He said, oh, it shouldn't be a problem. And then he said, go speak to my stepmother, she's the one that takes care of all this sort of stuff. And she said, give me a day or two, let me make some phone calls. And she comes back to me and she's like, yeah, we're not giving you a visa. <laughs> and I was like, what? And silly me, I didn't go speak to my buddy who was the winemaker, kind of like running the show. And I just found that I saw him maybe six or seven months ago, and I brought this up. He's like, why don't you come talk to me? <laughs> For whatever reason, I didn't. Um, so finished up the harvest. I don't know. It was sometime in the middle of November. And I was like, well, I got to go somewhere. You know, Europe's going to kick me out after three months on the passport. And I used to live in Asia, and I hadn't been back since 2010. Uh, still have numerous friends, uh, one particular very good friend in, in Thailand. and. She always said, you know, come out and stay with me as long as you want, blah, blah, blah. So I called her up and I said, I'll be there in like a week. And I floated around Asia for about six months. Uh, and then I was like, you know what, I need to kind of get back to work. <laughs> Been a little bit longer unemployed <laughs> than, I, than I wanted. Uh, so was looking for jobs in Asia, wasn't, wasn't finding anything that was sustainable enough, you know, strong enough a position. So came back to the US and was going to choose between Seattle and Portland. Hmm. So I flew out, visited both, liked Portland a little bit more, uh, proximity to the wine, uh, the wine scene, vineyards, wineries, everything. Um, flew back to New Jersey, drove a car out here, five days, four nights, it was very much like I need to get out here. <laughs> it wasn't about stopping along the way and seeing the country. There's a lot of books on tape, drove straight across, got here and I showed up September 21st, I think, which is not the best time to look for a job in a tasting room <laughs> or, or anything at, at a winery. And was interviewing at a couple of restaurants uh, in town, none of those panned out. Got one or two interviews uh, at wineries here in the valley. They didn't pan out either. Uh, the only job that I had a call back for was to be the plant manager at the Cheesy Puffs factory. Fullerton's Cheesy Puffs, those gourmet Cheesy Puffs, you know? They're delicious. 
And we had this 45 minute phone interview and the guy's like, let's talk again tomorrow. And I said, let, let me think about it. And I was like, Russell, you didn't go to culinary school. You're not traveling across the country to make cheesy puffs. It would have been fun for like a month. <laughs> and I was like, no way. Um, so during this entire time, I was sending out resumes across the country. Uh, got a job offer at the Four Seasons in Georgetown mm -hmm. to be the wine director. So I was like, pretty cool company. Why not? Drove back across the country. Started working there, and the job was more GM of the restaurant. It was, wine was like 10% of my job, mm -hmm. so it wasn't really what I was looking for. It uh, didn't turn out to be the best fit, but one day before service, outside, sweeping the sidewalk, as the GM does, sweeping up cigarette butts, and this guy's walking down the street. It was Marty, the owner of Flanor. He's got a bottle of the 2013, the very first vintage that he'd made, and he's like, I'm looking to meet the wine director. I put my broom down, give him my business card, and I say, that's me. And he looks at me up and down, and I'm, you know, dressed nicely, and he's like, all right, I, I guess I believe this guy. And I keep asking him about him. He's like, I got this wine. He's like, I live down the street, but I have a winery out in Oregon. You know, you want to try it? I want to get it on some wine lists in the area. And I was just, like, fascinated more about him. Mm -hmm. And he just kept skirting the topic and going right back to the wine. Um, which I thought was really great. But I was like, who are you? You live here, you're not a winemaker, but you own a winery. I... And he just kept talking about the wine, gave me a bottle, labels, absolutely gorgeous. They're all hand-drawn by Marty's wife. Um, so I took the bottle, sat on my kitchen counter for about a week. Finally, I said, I should give this guy the benefit of the doubt. Popped it open, thought it was delicious, called him up the next day, ordered a case, and then just to flash forward, eight months later, had a ticket to come out here. So it was a very roundabout way of how I wound up here. I could not be more happy with how it turned out. Um, and the camera doesn't really show it, but all of this is absolutely incredible. So, I'm curious, you, it seemed like you were, when you were traveling, you were kind of searching because you were thinking winemaker at first, you're thinking you're gonna make some wine, and then you're, mm -hmm. so at what point did, did you kind of, how did you let decide? go of that dream well, yes, of wanting to make wine? Let's, let's talk about that. Probably the first day that I started working at Flanor when I got out here, I'm just... <laughs> it's so hard to sell it. And part of me thinks the last thing that the world needs is, you know, another former sommelier guy's wine. <laughs> you know? Some people do it really well. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to make a business out of it and really go forward and do it for the next 15, 25, 35 years, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, but it costs a lot of money to make wine. And even one barrel, 25 cases. Mm -hmm. So I thought, ooh, maybe I'll make a barrel or two. And it would be drinkable at best, let's be honest, you know. And unless I kept going with it for seven, eight, nine vintages, it probably wouldn't really get much better at first. Um, and just being around it, getting to help out in the harvest here, uh, you know, just being around the smells, uh, you know, around harvest, all the action, everything about it, I just, this is enough to satiate the thirst, mm -hmm. so to speak. Grant always tells me different, our winemaker, he's like, because I came up with a great name for one label or something, and before I even got it out, he was like, shh, don't tell me. He's like, you're going to need that one day. And I told him, I was like, dude, I told you, like, I don't really want to do this. And he's like, you will. The itch will come back. Mm -hmm. I don't think it will. <laughs> It's on camera now, so we can we, we can look down the road and see if it yes. did come back. <laughs> so I'm curious, before we get into that a little bit more, uh, you mentioned uh, working high-end restaurants in New York and, and then <coughs> mm -hmm. at Four Seasons in, in, in D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious about 
that experience and what you kind of what your main takeaways were from that as you come into this sort of sort of a role. Like what are you, what are you taking away from your kind of previous career into this job? Uh, attention to detail. When you're working in the front of the house in a restaurant, everything needs to be exactly where it you know, needs to be mm -hmm. on a table, shelves for all of your backup materials, whatever you need for to get you through service. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the sense of organization, it's the attention to detail, but above and beyond everything is treating everybody, every table. I remember when I was cooking, one of my sous chefs said, you know, cook every dish as if it's going out like to your parents, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, I worked at the most informative, probably, hospitality experience I had was not a fine dining experience, but was working for a guy named Paul Greco at Terroir Wine Bar in New York. Mm -hmm. And I would never go to work like this. This would be grossly overdressed. You'd be in, you know, jeans and a t-shirt, jean cutoffs, sneakers, a t-shirt over the summer. Um, huge wine list, amazing wine program, very casual place, playing really cool music but great service. Mm -hmm. And he had a line that he would say that I've adopted as my own is that uh, Best Buy has customers, we have guests. Mm -hmm. And it's treating everyone like a guest and knowing that hospitality is a dialogue. It is a conversation. It's not you sitting somebody down and telling them exactly mm -hmm. you know, how it's gonna be, which is part of it. You need to take charge because this is your house. Mm -hmm. um, but hospitality is this two-way street, and it's this conversation, and you need to learn from the guest what they want and how you can make that experience better. So even that was one of the most casual places I've ever worked. Hospitality-wise, it was the most informative. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your role here and what you were hired to do, and sort of take us through sort of what you, how you see your job at Flanillor. Yeah, um, I was the second person hired right after Grant. So that was pretty cool. The first year that I was here, if you did a wine tasting, it was with me. I did every single bit of wine tasting. I did the social media, which was mediocre <laughs> when I was doing it, I'm sure. Um, started the wine club um, and just did whatever needed to be done. I was, you know, cleaning the bathrooms, setting the tables, uh, packing up the wine club, uh, writing a newsletter, whatever needed to be done. The team has now grown to, I think there's about 12 people on payroll, uh, seven or eight of which are all hospitality and sales. Mm -hmm. um, so the title, you know, Director of Sales and Hospitality, so it's overseeing everything that goes on in here and then everything that goes on sales-wise. Um, but the whole team operates very autonomously. Um, I was saying before the cameras were on, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the valley and everyone on the team is because Marty, the guy that owns this place, gives you more autonomy than you know what to do with almost. The sky's the limit. Um, and I remember I, I got you know, a company credit card the first couple of months I was here, and I was going around buying all the you know, tables and chairs and decorative things and all that kind of stuff. And I would often call him. I'd be like, you know, can I buy this? You know, it costs $500 or whatever it was. And after about two months, he was like, stop asking me and just do it. And it took a lot of time just getting used to that. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that exactly answers the question, but the, the overall job is, is just paying attention to all those fine details. Um, I want every table down there to be you know, set perfectly, every guest to be treated really well, um, everything to be done in a unique 
friendly, very hospitable manner. Tell me about, you, you mentioned earlier selling wine is hard. Uh, I think That's you the hardest thing. I don't know which is harder, making it or selling it. So tell me about <laughs> selling wine, especially selling wine here in Oregon. What's, what, how have you found it? What, what, are your, what have your challenges been? What have your strategies been? One of the biggest challenges is coming from restaurants. Personally, for me, is coming from restaurants where for the last 10 years, I would have a wine list that would have anywhere from 35 to... 500 different wines depending on you know what it was a small cafe or you know a crazy wine bar that has literally 60 wines by the glass 450 bottles to choose from from countries all around the world mm -hmm. different vintages different everything and you're going from all of that to one winery currently producing wines from three different grapes you usually have one vintage at a time going out you know five different you know skews so to speak mm -hmm. Uh, that's really challenging, and you're diving a lot deeper on you know, what kind of rootstock, what kind of uh, clones, uh, what exactly was the winemaking, what happened, what are like the hyper details of that vintage, as opposed to in restaurants. You know, when you're selling a bottle, you kind of gloss over it, mm -hmm. unless you know a guest really wants to dive deep into something for some you know, crazy lofty bottle, or they're a wine geek, or whatever it is. But um, it's you're usually pretty quick and curt on the floor and maybe you're going to speak to that guest for one minute but we do tastings and you have people in your presence at your table for one hour and you have to tell the entire story of the winery um, and focusing on this one region mm -hmm. so that's been a challenge um, other than that the easier part is that when people step into a winery you know, the level of the romanticity of it is just through the roof. You walk into a space like this or many of the other wineries in the valley, you're out at a vineyard, it's absolutely incredible. Um, you are whisked away, and I get whisked away. You know, I go to wineries, I go visit other regions, and you know, I got three cases of wine in, in my trunk that I don't need, but I had, I had to buy them. So a little bit easier um, in terms of you know getting people as long as your wine is good. Mm -hmm. um, I think you know having people walk out with bottles of wine. Mm -hmm. um, what about the sort of customer expectation? You talked about the, the deep dive into a single story. Uh -huh. Do you find customers are are they receptive to the deep dive? Do they really <coughs> just want how most how, are? How, what's the level of education they're they're asking for from you? I feel that most people are most people that are coming out to do wine tastings. If you're going to visit wine country, you're looking for a different experience than if you were just going to a wine bar and wanted to get a flight and say, oh, here's a flight of Dolcetto and one's from Italy and two's from you know different countries, mm -hmm. uh, two other countries. Uh, I, I, I find that if you're going to make a part of your vacation going to Napa, Sonoma, Willamette, you know, the Gorge, Tuscany, whatever it is, you are interested in wine beyond just, I just want to taste it and tell me if it tastes like cherries or blueberries or whatever. Um, and then offering different experiences definitely pulls people into the directions that they might want to go to. You have a, a normal you know, classic wine tasting, and then you have these elevated wine tastings that a lot of wineries are doing. Some involve food, some involve seven or eight wines as opposed to three or four or five. Mm -hmm. um, the price point that's attached to those generally kind of you know, funnels people into what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. 
So you kind of get a sense of what that guest is expecting. And then what have you found the Flaneur guest expectation to be? Uh, uh, is it does it in line with what you're what you were expecting when you took the job? Are, are the customers what you expected, or are they different? Some are, some are not. Um, I didn't have too many expectations. I never worked for a winery before, so I was always in hospitality in some form or doing sales for a distributor. Um, so it's hard to say. It's pretty much what I expected. Um, just having been to wine country, you know, around the world, and just you know observing other other tourists and guests in that environment, I kind of had a sense of what it was going to be like. Um, with everything in the world, <laughs> with with every restaurant experience, every retail experience, every winery experience probably buying cars, going to see concerts, all these musical festivals that have food wrapped up into them now as well, celebrity chefs and you know crazy amazing bands and mm -hmm. craft beer and all of this. Everyone is looking for a deeper, more enriching, bigger, uh, more sophisticated, more special, more wow sort of experience. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's the biggest challenge is that you have incredible wineries within a 20 mile radius around us. There are dozens of people making great wines, mm -hmm. people that are beautiful spaces, great hospitality. Um, and everyone's doing things a little bit different, but we're all looking at each other a little bit. Uh, so it's trying to do something that's unique amongst our peers mm -hmm. um, and something that lives up to you know, the whole like social media culture. Mm -hmm. It's like Instagram and Yelp and all of that is amazing and absolutely horrible. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, it is. It's, everyone's a critic. Everyone's an opinion. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's got something to say. Um, but it's good. And a way to say it. And a way to say it. But that's also good because it's instant feedback, mm -hmm. um, and it has to. It keeps you on your A game. Mm -hmm. so, so talk a little bit about that. The kind of elevated experience, the enriched experience. So what are mm -hmm. you? What are you offering here? What are you trying to offer here that is sort of unique or special to to Flanur, to the site? Uh, I mean, what is unique right off the bat is just the space that you're tasting in. You're in a 100-year-old grain elevator that's been completely renovated, left with its original structure, and it hasn't been changed too much from you know the way it used to look, um, except for you know the expensive vintage couches <laughs> and all that, of course. Um, so you walk into this amazing space and you are transported to just this, you know surreal sort of experience with, you know, 75 foot ceiling. Um, we're going to start off slowly with what we're offering for the hospitality and see how it will organically grow and change. We want to introduce, you know, an element of food in the future. Um, we have a commercial kitchen downstairs, so that'll be a part of that. Uh, but right now it is very warm and genuine hospitality, uh, a sense of education and the beautiful space and wines that we hope are unique amongst everyone else within the valley. Um, beyond that, we'll start to tweak things a little bit more, you know, every couple of months, every season, and introduce new elements. Uh, but there's not a specific roadmap of what that needs to look like. We know where we want to go. Uh, we're not exactly sure how we're going to get there. And what that end picture is going to be is constantly changing. It's, it's very fluid, which is good. And I think that any, any great you know, 
business, whether it's hospitality or something else, you need to have that fluidity to be able to, you know, ebb and flow and change and, you know, react to whatever the times are, whatever the trends are, whatever you want to do as well, not just trends, which are good to look at, but not always the best to mimic. What's been the response so far from, I mean, from they're still pretty new, pretty young, and the space is brand new. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the response from customers so far. The response is great. The response is wow. You can't walk into this building and not have a smile on your face. You can't say wow. It's absolutely incredible. Um, there are, of course, people that aren't going to love the wines, uh, but overall the response has been great. Um, people come in, they have tons of questions about the building. Uh, what did it look like before? People always love to ask, well, how much did it cost? Which I find a very interesting question. <laughs> I always tell the floor staff, I say, tell them it cost enough that we're banking on you walking out of here with a six pack. <laughs> it's a little, bit, a little cheeky, a little bit of a joke. Um, certainly a big price tag, but it is you know, a piece of history that has been restored that could have easily just been torn down. So very cool that we're able to give something back to the community, be a part of the community. Um, and we have people that come here that walk in just to see the space. And they say, oh, when I was a child, I used to you know, deliver you know, grain to be sorted out here with my grandfather. Something like that. Or my great-grandfather helped build this place, or whatever it was. Um, so the response aesthetically to the building has been great. And then to the wines has been wonderful. Our winemaker has got a great reputation within the valley from the previous place that he was working at, at, at Beaufrere. Um, so he has uh, his kind of loyal following. Um, and then the people that we're working with also, uh, our hospitality manager, the wine uh, tasting room manager rather, Kelly is coming from Domaine Druin. She was there for four years. You know, we constantly have people coming in. Mm -hmm. You know, still she's been here about six or seven months already. And, you know, her, you know, loyal followers, so to speak, are coming to see where she's moved to. Mm -hmm. And then they taste the wines and see her enthusiasm and excitement about it. So, um, overall good. You mentioned earlier that one of the hallmarks you're hoping for is like is genuine and, and warm hospitality. And I'm mm -hmm. curious, uh, as you're looking, either looking for people or as you're training people, what are the sort of hallmarks of that to you? How, what is that? How does that? How is that something that resonates from from you? Uh, what is what is warm and genuine hospitality look like? <clears throat> warm and genuine hospitality is listening. First and foremost, people don't listen enough, and the more you listen to your guests, the more you learn about them and you can try to tweak the experience if you're able to for them. Uh, treating everybody kindly, always smiling, not rushing. Um, I wanna say that it's all common sense. You, you can't really, you can only teach hospitality so much to somebody. You could teach service, that's pretty easy. Hospitality is looking somebody in the eye. Um, treating them equally, you know. I think being firm but fair with everything with how you operate, you know, there's a certain way that every restaurant, every tasting room, every business needs to operate so that they could function and give the experience uh, that they want to. You're mm -hmm. set up in a certain way. Uh, you have certain mechanics. You have certain steps of service. Certain things that work within your particular space that you sort of need to obey in order to, you know, execute the experience that you want to give that person. So. 
you know, very softly letting them know about that. You know, it's not like a set of rules or anything. Um, but just through body language, through, you know, bringing them to a particular table. Um, not just having total chaos of, you know, sit wherever you want and, and this and that. Um, it, it's mainly, it all comes back to listening. Mm -hmm. It all comes back to that dialogue. So what would you, how would you describe sort of the overall like flaneur philosophy? What is, it you are, what is it you are selling? What is the story? The story, uh, the word is amazing. The word is printed on the side of every bottle. We don't have a bottle up here. Um, zoom it right up into the camera. But uh, it's a real word. It was gifted to the universe from the French because only they could come up with something so beautiful and so amazing that we don't even have a direct translation for in the English language. Uh, so the word dates back to the 17th century but came into its current meaning in the mid-19th century or a little bit earlier. And it was like a phenomena that sort of swept the streets of Paris where men would get dressed up and go for a long walk with no destination. So to wander aimlessly yet enjoyably and just observe life and your surroundings and just take it in, get lost, experience something new. Um, there's the female form is flanus, so the flanus and the flanor. And these were not bums, these are not homeless people, these are people that had means, they, they had money. Yeah, um, yeah, they would get dressed up and they would say when you were on the streets in Paris and you would see these flanur and flanus walking about, they would say, look at these people walking so slowly as if being led by a turtle. So hence we have the man on the, on the label walking the turtle. Um, and it's all about you know, letting the turtle set your pace, take your time, which is what wine should be all about, wine country in particular, and then wine in general. You know, sit down with your husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, friends, parents, whoever it is, and just shut your phone off, have a conversation, take it easy, learn something new. So that's a little bit about the philosophy. You walk into this building and time kind of stops. You know, this, where we're standing right now was built in 1920. Uh, they kept extending onto the building further on and then built the one next door and then the one that we had, you know, torn down and used as the floors that we are uh, standing on. These floors are about four inches thick. Sorry to get up and interrupt the, uh, okay. the interview a bit, but this is the floorboard that we're sitting on right now, which is absolutely incredible. We had a cut tongue and groove, and I mean, it's like walking on cement. It is so sturdy and so heavy. It's really amazing. So pretty cool uh, feature that just adds to that story about you know being lost in time when you sort of walk in here and you know just seeing something new to be curious. There's a great saying that's wrapped up into the world of being a flaneur that, because uh, it could have a little bit of a negative connotation these days in France, that like hedonist, that flaneur, that guy wandering around. Uh, but it's not about wasting time. It's about regaining time that has been lost. And that's sort of the best way to look at it. Tell me about, uh when you first got here, your, 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 your initial thoughts about the Oregon wine industry, what, mm -hmm. what, did you, what, did you, what did you think about Oregon wine, your first experience with it? My first experience with Oregon wines, I didn't drink a bunch of Oregon wine before coming out here. Mm -hmm. uh, just learning a lot about wine in New York. Um, 
And then in China, I was living in China for a couple of years working for a wine importer. Um, and both of those experiences were very European focused, very old world focused. So that's what I kind of grew up learning more about. And it's just what I was naturally drinking more of for whatever reason. And there was, you know, a large handful of producers that I loved up and down the West Coast. Some of them were from Oregon, quite a few from California, a couple from Washington. Um, so coming out here, I knew a little bit. I looked at Oregon as less developed than California overall. There are just a, you know a smaller number of wineries, you know, smaller number of tourists coming here. It's it's just a smaller area in general. Um, but I looked at everything qualitatively as just absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. Styles of wine that, as a blanket statement, as such as everything in the wine world, uh, I would generally gravitate towards more than our neighbors to the north and south. Um, What about, uh, has, has that changed at all? Has it, have your perspectives, as you've learned more about Oregon and been involved in the industry, have your, how you feel about the Oregon wine, has that changed at all? Has the industry changed in your eyes since you've gotten to know it more? Um, I guess the way that I look at it is probably different, and that's just because I've learned so much more about it. Uh, the defining characteristics between all the sub-AVAs, uh, average prices per bottle, uh, new grapes that are being grown here. I think that it, you know, Pinot Noir, obviously, it does really, really well here. I like all the expressions that come out of all the different areas. Um, and like Malbec in Argentina and Shiraz in the Barossa Valley and Cabernet in Napa and Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand, there is a certain, you, know, you find a grape that works really well and people want to, you know, sort of capitalize on that. Um, for all the right reasons. And that sort of helps. You have that United We Stand, that sort of megaphone that makes, you know, Willamette or Oregon, Pinot, you know, a sort of like household name sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really helps get the message out and helps elevate um, how well known the wine region is in general on a quicker pace. Mm -hmm. But then it gets to a certain point where you don't want to be that one trick pony and you need to start looking at what else we can grow. Um, and so it's been really interesting to see the producers uh, that are planting, in general, other things besides Pinot Noir. You're seeing, obviously, a big increase in Chardonnay, in Gamay, Pinot Meunier, a lot of sparkling wine coming out, um, a couple of other grape varietals that are being experimented with. Uh, so that, that's been really interesting and fascinating. And I guess what I'm learning is that the valley is capable of a lot more than just the two or three grapes that it's been famous for over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. So what would you say the, what is the Oregon wine, what is the state of the industry now in 2020? What would you say Oregon wine is right now? Where is it, what is it? It is uh, seen overall as a very quality oriented region. I think that even when you look at just a Willamette Valley label bottling, as opposed to you know a single vineyard or from Dundee or Shehalem Mountains or Ribbon Ridge, even just that uh, lack of a better word, but that more generic just Willamette Valley, um, I think that automatically comes with uh, a certain price tag and a certain level of quality that's associated to it, as opposed to when you see that from other regions, mm -hmm. um, perhaps in Oregon, but especially within. Uh, other domestic states, domestic regions. Sure.
And what about as you look ahead? What is Oregon wine going to look like uh, a decade from now? What, what What's coming to the industry? Uh, I think Pinot Noir will always be the predominant planted varietal. Um, I see a lot more Gamay, a lot more Chardonnay, and a lot more sparkling wine. Mm -hmm. I think those three things will become quite mainstream. And then after that, there's a number of other grapes that you're going to see a lot more as well. But I think those three other, two other varietals and sparkling wine as a segment mm -hmm. is going to become quite well known. Mm -hmm. I think Oregon could become the sort of preeminent area where sparkling wine is made within the U.S. What about in terms of, of size of the industry? Do you, what, do you, what do you see happening to the size of the Oregon wine industry? I think it's going to grow a lot. <laughs> Quite a bit. Quite a bit. Um, what is it, 750, 780 wineries right now like in that. Oregon? Yep. Um, where only 10 or 12 years ago it was like 400, something like that. Um, I think over the course of the next decade and a half, you will see a lot more foreign uh, influence like you're currently seeing, people from Burgundy coming here. Um, you'll see people from other countries as well, I think, investing. Um, and I think the number of the wineries is going to increase, but I think the wineries will always be on the smaller side. I don't think you're going to see as many large-scale commercial wineries. Mm -hmm. Um, and the large-scale commercial people, wineries, and everyone has their place in, in the world of wine. I don't you know, poo-poo those wineries at all. Um, I think that if you're, gonna, if you're a larger, you know, kind of business-oriented producer and you're coming to a region, you're going to try to capitalize on you know, what that region is known for. Mm -hmm. So it would be Pinot Noir, mm -hmm. which is more expensive to, to grow and produce. So I think that and this is just all speculation. <laughs> what we're asking I, for. I think that you would see uh, a larger number of these small producers cropping up over the next 15 years, but a smaller number of these really large-scale producers. I could be totally wrong, but uh, we'll see. Are there any concerns you have as you look ahead? Anything that you're on the horizon that concerns you for the Oregon industry or, or that you're fearing for the industry? my fearing um, too many people's wines tasting similar to one another you know kind of people following sort of one path one sort of style mm -hmm. um, I guess that's one concern I guess another one would be if these other varietals and styles that I just mentioned a few minutes ago don't continue to increase mm -hmm. and it still just goes forward as Pinot Noir as the absolute dominant uh, varietal. I guess that would be a small concern. Um, I guess those would probably be the two biggest ones. I'm not worried about it becoming too crowded because there's quite a bit of unplanted land um, I think things need to be sort of, you know, spread out so it doesn't become too congested. Mm -hmm. um, but Oregon in general has been pretty good about zoning for that sort of stuff. So uh, the protection of the land is something that is looked after very, very well from what I've seen. Um, one thing that I'd be concerned about is a lot of farmers selling their land and having it turn into vineyards. 
you go around some wine areas and it is a monoculture and it's just uh, vineyards where when you come out here not only is it healthier uh, that you have a variety of different crops growing amongst vineyards there are cherry orchards and people growing grass seed and whatever it is and all the hazelnut production um, not only does that look beautiful and add to the variety of the valley, but it's also healthier for just the ecosystem in general. So that's something that I think is very important. And I'm not sure what the laws are on that, but I think they, that they should be monitored. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about as you look ahead for, for yourself and for Flanur, as you, uh, what, what are the goals here? You mentioned sort of kind of a, an end goal you have in mind, not exactly sure how you're gonna get there, and if it's going to still be the same goal once you do get there, but mm -hmm. what do you see as you look ahead for the business and for yourself mm. personally? For the business, constant refinement in what we're doing with the wines and with the experience at the Grand Elevator. Uh, we do tastings up at this old barn on one of the vineyards um, and building out a campus of experiences. We want to have our wine club members, we want to have return visiting guests, you know, call us up and say, I've already tasted in the Grand Elevator, and what else can we do? And I'll say, well, you know what? We have this amazing experience up in this really rustic old barn. You've done that already? Well, you know what? We, are, we just finished building this tree house in the forest on one of the properties, which is a part of the plan. That will be, the very last thing that will be built will be this amazing cool tree house kind of experience. Mm -hmm. um, so having multiple different experiences, whether it's walking through the vineyard with our vineyard manager, whether it's being up on this mezzanine level and having a great food and wine experience, mm -hmm. uh, there will be different reasons to come back, as well as different vintages of the wine. Mm -hmm. There's going to be these different hospitality experiences. That's one part. Uh, taking Flanor on the road a little bit more, doing tastings in people's houses nationwide, and you know, wine club pickup parties in you know, Dallas, LA, New York, Chicago, whatever it is, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the hospitality side. Um, sales side, uh, you know, getting into a few more states nationwide, uh, getting into a couple of countries, you know, trying to have more of a, a global uh, presence. I haven't gotten the wines into France yet. That is uh, a goal just because of the name itself. I don't know if the French would love it or hate it. Just sent one pallet to Quebec, mm -hmm. uh, so that's exciting, and they, they seem to love it. <laughs> so I don't know how the French think, but um, I haven't had any takers yet. Um, what about for yourself personally? For myself personally, I could see working for this winery in, until they fire me, <laughs> to be honest. Um, to continue always having one finger in the hospitality bit, whether it's still you know, gonna be day to day or just always a part of that conversation. If someone else is leading it and letting them do their thing, uh, but always just being a part of that conversation, I find really fun because uh, I was in it from such an early stage. Um, but for me, I would love to spend more time on the road uh, visiting markets and you know, kind of spreading the gospel, so to speak, uh, of Flanor. And particularly, um, getting the wines more widespread within Asia. Mm -hmm. We just started working with one person in South Korea, uh, but I would love to get the wines in a half a dozen countries over there. Mm -hmm. And that's completely selfish, so I could go visit more. <laughs> I lived there for three and a half years in China, so uh, 
for me, it's just a selfish thing of wanting to go there and eat all of the amazing food. <laughs> That's really just comes down to fried rice and dumplings. <laughs> That's really it. It's good to have. It's good to have your motivations clear as you're as you're yes, developing a plan. Yeah, I'd say absolutely. yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'm curious. Uh, what do you think? The what is the role that that wine has in society? And, and you obviously have you have a background in a lot of different cultures and societies. So, is there a common thread uh, for the places that you've been to that uh, the role wine plays there? Uh, a social lubricant, liquid confidence. It's. Um, what does it play in society? It should be a part of a meal, a part of people hanging out, a part of people getting together. It's a very social beverage. Um, it, it's often, I mean, all of us, yourself included, I'm sure you know, drink wine by yourself at home. Um, but wine, even more so than other beverages, I find is more well enjoyed, better enjoyed when you're around company. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, there's something about sharing wine with somebody. There, there's so much to what goes on historically um, and currently within every single bottle um, that, like most wine geeks, you know, if I'm at home by myself, I'm not going to open up like one of my better bottles. You know, I'll purposely drink that, you know, whatever bottle. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's kind of it. It's kind of a, a quick, succinct answer, but. Uh, it is, it's amazing the entire, you go around the world, you could be anywhere. You could be in almost any country, any state, any city, any small town. There is this little wine scene. There is going to be one group of, you know, wine geeks. There's going to be one guy that lives in this little town and in his basement. He's got a thousand bottles that he's been collecting for God knows how long. And he's really obsessed with Chenin Blanc from, you know, South Africa for some reason, whatever it is. Um, you find these people all around. Mm -hmm. um, and usually people are very generous and really love to share and you know, just geek out about it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So if someone were to come to you and, and uh, express an interest in getting into the world of wine or food, mm -hmm. hospitality, what would your words of wisdom to them be? Um, make sure that they love working because you'll be working a lot <laughs> make sure that you don't mind working on weekends and long hours uh, make sure that you have a thick skin because again with social media people will um, applaud you very quickly and they will try to tear you down very quickly I would say absolutely start working in a restaurant even if the restaurants not the end goal work for at least one year on the floor of a restaurant and try to make it the nicest restaurant possible because everything that you will learn at that very high level, you can take down with you if you were going to work in a diner. What you would learn in a fine dining restaurant will come in handy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and just make sure that you're doing it because you love it, not because you're you know setting out to make you know a small fortune, which can absolutely happen in the food and wine world. <laughs> but you usually don't become a chef or a, you know a winemaker. Or, sommelier or whatever because you're you know out to make some ridiculously high salary um, so you know doing it because you absolutely love it because you have a passion for it and you have to have a certain level of patience because you're dealing with the public and people are very needy um, which is not a bad thing um, it's just being able to anticipate and deliver for that and and not lose your cool 
want to back up to one thing you said there. Yeah. You talked about uh, developing a thick skin. Uh -huh. at, what point, <laughs> at what point did you develop a thick skin? Um, what point did I develop a, a thick skin? Probably in the first three months into my first job working as a, a line cook. Mm -hmm. uh, you develop a thick skin overnight or you just don't last. Uh, yeah, the chef is yelling. You hear the little ticket printer constantly going off. A little bit of food comes sent back. You have to redo something. Uh, it's just, it's a lot of stress. Uh, yeah. That's all the questions that I have for you today. All Is there right. anything we didn't cover that we should have? Anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Not that I could think of. Yeah, uh, yeah that was, it was quicker than I thought. I'm sure some people talk for hours. <laughs> some people do. They go how they go, you know. It's pretty yeah. great. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, for uh -huh. sharing your story and your perspectives with us. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.